Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Tractor Principles, published in 1920 and written by Roger B. Whitman. This story looks at all the moving parts that makes a tractor work. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a massive thank you to Tracy Townsend for becoming a new $5 patron on Patreon. Your monthly contribution is an amazing compliment to receive. Thank you. Thank you also to those who left me a review during the week. Thank you to Sleepy in Pittsburgh for your lovely review on iTunes. Thank you also to Gigi for your lovely review on iTunes. And thank you to all patrons and sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Your support allows me to bring out more episodes to help those who need them. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask of you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes, or leave the show a rating in Spotify. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at boytosleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Tractor Principles, Chapter 1 While tractors and automobiles are the same in general principles, there is a wide difference between them in design, construction, and handling due to the differences in the work that they do and in the conditions under which they do it. An automobile is required to move only itself and the load that it carries. While it can run over rough roads, these must be hard enough to support it. On soft ground, it will sink in and be unable to get itself out. It can make great speed over smooth, level roads, but only rarely do road and police conditions permit it to run its fastest for more than a few minutes at a time. For the greater part of its life, it develops only a portion of the power of which it is capable. A tractor, on the other hand, is intended not to carry, but to haul. It must run and do its work on rough hillsides, soft bottoms, or any other land where it is required to go. Instead of developing speed, it develops pulling power 
and must be able to develop its full power continuously. Appearance and comfort count for a great deal in an automobile, and much attention is devoted to making it noiseless and simple to manage. These things do not apply in a tractor, which is a labour-saving and money-making machine, valuable only for the work that it can do. There is no question of upholstery or nickel plating. All that is wanted is a machine that will do the required work with the least possible cost of operation. As is the case with any kind of machine that is purchased as a money maker, its cost should be as low as is consistent with its ability to do its work. Any extra cost for accessories or finish or other detail is wasted unless it permits the machine to do more work, or, by making the operator more comfortable, allows him to run the machine for a longer stretch of time or with greater efficiency. It may be taken for granted that any tractor will run and will do its work with satisfaction, provided it is sensibly handled and cared for. Far more troubles and breakdowns come from careless handling and from neglect than from faulty design and material. A tractor that is running and doing its work is earning a return on the money invested in it. When it is laid up for repairs, there is not only a loss of interest on the investment, but a loss of the value of the work that it might be doing. To keep a tractor running is a matter only of understanding and of common sense. Common sense to realise that any piece of machinery needs some degree of care and attention, and understanding of where the care and attention should be applied. The more thoroughly a tractor operator understands his machine, the more work he will be able to get out of it and the more continuously it will run. This is only another way of saying that understanding and knowledge pay a direct return in work done and money earned. In the early days of the automobile, there was as many types of cars as there were manufacturers. As time has gone on, the unsatisfactory ideas have been weeded out and automobiles have approached what may be called a standard design. At the present time, tractor designs are varied, and it is hardly possible to speak of any type as standard. The reason for this lies in the fact that many manufacturers start with a design for one special part and build the tractor around it. For example... A manufacturer may develop a method of driving the wheels that he feels is especially good for tractor work. In applying it, he may find that the engine must be so placed on the frame that when the power pulley is in position, the belt will interfere with the front wheels unless they are small. He therefore uses small front wheels and advocates them for tractors. 
another manufacturer with a patent steering gear may be able to place the power pulley so that there is ample clearance for the belt. He finds that by using high front wheels, he can get a better support for the frame and therefore claims that high front wheels are an advantage. Other designs may be based on having three wheels or two. Advantages are claimed for each type and each type undoubtedly has them. The selection of a tractor is based on one's own experience or on that of neighbours or on the ability of the salesman to bring out the advantages of the make that he sells. But when the tractor is bought and delivered, its ability to do the work promised for it depends solely on the care with which it is handled and looked after. Whatever the design of a tractor may be, there are certain parts that it must have in order to do the work required of it. These parts or groups of parts are as follows. Engine. This furnishes the power by which the tractor operates. There is also the clutch. By means of a clutch, the engine may be connected with the mechanism so that the tractor moves or it may be disconnected so that it may run without moving the tractor. Change speed gear. As will be explained in later chapters, an engine, in order to work most efficiently, should run at a fixed speed. The tractor should be able to run fast or slow, according to conditions. A change speed gear is therefore provided, by which the speed of the tractor may be changed, although there is no change in the speed of the engine. The drive is the mechanism that applies the power of the engine to the wheels and makes them turn. When a tractor makes a turn, the outside wheels cover a larger circle than the inside wheels and therefore must run faster in order to get around in the same time. It is usually the case that the power of the engine is applied to both driving wheels if both were solid on the axle, like the wheels of a railroad car, one would be forced to slip when making a turn, which would waste power. By applying a differential, the engine can drive both wheels, but the wheels may run at different speeds when conditions require it. The clutch, change speed gear, drive and differential form the transmission. A tractor moves on broad tired wheels or on crawlers which are so formed that they grip the ground and do not slip. They give so broad a support that even on soft ground the weight of the tractor will not pack the soil sufficiently to injure it as a seed bed. The frame is the foundation of the tractor and holds the parts in the proper relation to each other. It is usually made of channel steel, the parts being bolted to it. In some tractors, however, the parts are so attached to each other that they form their own support and no other frame is needed. Tractor manufacturers make these parts in different ways. All accomplish the same results 
but do it by different methods. The main principles are much the same, and should be known and understood. They are described and explained in the succeeding chapters. The working part of the tractor is the engine. It is this that furnishes the power that makes the machine go. The engine gets its power from the burning of a mixture of fuel vapour and air. When this mixture burns, it becomes heated, and as is usual with hot things, it tries to expand or to occupy more room. The mixture is placed in a cylinder between the closed end and the piston. It is then heated by being burned, and in struggling to expand, it forces the piston to slide down the cylinder. This movement of the piston makes the crankshaft revolve, which in turn drives the tractor. The first step in making the engine run is to put a charge of mixture into the cylinder, and it is clear that if the burning of the charge is to move the piston, the piston must be in such a position that it is able to move. When the mixture is burned, the piston must therefore be at the closed end of the cylinder. After the charge of mixture has been burned, the cylinder must be cleared of the dead and useless gases that remain, in order to make room for a fresh charge. The charge of mixture is drawn into the cylinder, just as a pump sucks in water. At a time when the piston is at the closed end of the cylinder, a valve is opened connecting the same space above the piston with the device that forms the mixture. Then by moving the piston outward, mixture is sucked into the space above it. When the piston reaches the end of its stroke, the cylinder has been filled with mixture, and the valve then closes. It would be useless to set fire to the mixture at that time, for the piston is as far down the cylinder as it can be, and pressure could not move it any farther. To get the piston into such a position that the expanding mixture can move it, it is forced back to the closed end of the cylinder. This squeezes or compresses the cylinderful of mixture into the small space, called the combustion chamber, between the piston and the cylinder head. If the mixture is now burned, the piston can move the length of the cylinder and in doing so develops power. The cylinder is cleared of the burned and useless gases by opening a valve and pushing them out by moving the piston back into the inner of the end of the cylinder. When this has been done, the valve is closed, and by opening the inlet valve and moving the piston outward, a fresh charge is sucked in and the several steps of the gas engine cycle are repeated. The name cycle is given to any series of steps or events that must be gone through in order that a thing may happen. Thus the empty shell must be taken out of a gun, and fresh cartridge put in before the gun can be fired, 
and that series of steps might be called the gun cycle. The gas engine cycle requires the piston to make four strokes. An outward stroke sucks in a charge of mixture, and an inward stroke returns the piston to the firing position and compresses the charge. Then comes the outward stroke when the piston moves under power, followed by the inward stroke that clears the cylinder of the burned gases. For every stroke of the piston, the crankshaft makes a half-revolution. The crankshaft, therefore, makes two revolutions to four strokes of the piston, and to each repetition of the gas engine cycle. Of these four strokes of the piston, only one produces power. The other three strokes, called the dead strokes, are required to prepare for another power stroke. A gas engine cylinder thus produces power for only one quarter of the time that it runs. This is one of the striking differences between the gas engine and the steam engine, for the piston of a steam engine moves under power all of the time that the engine runs. A one-cylinder gas engine must have something to make the piston go through the dead strokes, for otherwise the piston would stop at the end of the power stroke. The piston is kept in motion by heavy flywheels attached to the crankshaft. These, like any object, try to continue in motion when once they are started. A power stroke starts the crankshaft, revolving and its flywheels keep it going. Thus the piston drives the crankshaft during the power stroke and the crankshaft drives the piston during the dead strokes. To start an engine, the crankshaft is revolved to make the piston suck in a charge of mixture and compress it. Then the charge is burned, the power stroke takes place, and the engine runs. A clear idea of what goes on inside the cylinder is quite necessary in order to take proper care of an engine and to get the best work out of it. During the inlet stroke, the piston moves outward. The inlet valve is open and the exhaust valve is closed. This movement of the piston creates suction and if there are leaks in the cylinder, air will be sucked in and will spoil the proportions of the charge. This will prevent the proper burning of the mixture, and the engine will lose power. The piston moves at such a high speed that the mixture cannot enter fast enough to keep up with it. The mixture is still flowing in when the piston reaches the end of its stroke, and even when it begins to move inward on the next stroke, the more mixture there is in the cylinder, the more powerfully the engine will run. The inlet valve is therefore held open for as long a time as the mixture continues to enter. In slow speed, one cylinder and two cylinder engines, the valve closes when the piston reaches the end of its stroke. On high speed engines, the valve does not close until the piston has moved one quarter inch or one half inch on the compression stroke.
During the compression stroke, the piston moves inward and both valves are closed. This movement places the piston in position to move outward on the power stroke. As the outlets to the cylinder are closed, the charge of mixture cannot escape and is therefore compressed into space between the piston and the cylinder head when the piston is at the inner end of its stroke. This space is usually about one quarter the volume of the cylinder. The charge is therefore compressed to about one quarter of its original volume. The compression of the charge is very important in the operation of the gas engine and any interference with it will make the engine run poorly. In the first place, it improves the quality of the charge and makes it burn very much better. When the charge enters the cylinder, the fuel vapour and air are not thoroughly mixed. Much of the fuel is not turned into vapour. By compressing the charge, it becomes heated. This vaporises the fuel and vapour and air become thoroughly mixed. Compression also increases the power. Suppose that the cylinder contains a quart of mixture, which when heated, will expand to a gallon. If this quart of mixture is compressed to a half pint, it will not lose its ability to expand to a gallon and will exert more pressure in expanding from a half pint to a gallon than from a quart to a gallon. A leaky cylinder will cause a further loss of power because some of the charge will escape during the compression stroke, which will leave less to be burned and to develop power. Setting fire to the charge of mixture is called the ignition of the charge and it takes place close to the end of the compression stroke. To get the greatest power, all of the mixture should be on fire and heated most intensely as the piston begins the power stroke. When the mixture is set on fire, it does not explode like gunpowder, but burns comparatively slowly. The charge is ignited by an electric spark and the flame spreads from that point until it is all on fire. In order to give the flame time to spread, the spark passes sufficiently before the end of the compression stroke to have the entire charge on fire as the power stroke begins. This is called the advance of the ignition. The flame takes the same time to spread through the charge when the engine is running fast as when it is running slow. Therefore, if the engine is speeded up, the spark must be advanced, for otherwise the piston would be on the power stroke before the flame would have time to spread all through the mixture. During the power stroke, the piston moves outward and both valves are closed. As it begins, the mixture is all on fire and great pressure is exerted against the piston. 
As the piston moves outward, the combustion space becomes larger and the gases obtain the room for expansion that they seek. As they expand, the pressure that they exert becomes less. By the time the piston is three quarters the way down the power stroke, the pressure is so reduced that it has little or no effect. The gases are still trying to expand, however, so the exhaust valve is opened at that point and they begin to escape. During the exhaust stroke, the piston moves inward and the exhaust valve is open. This movement of the piston pushes the burned gases out of the cylinder and it is clear that the more thoroughly the cylinder is emptied of them, the more room there will be for a fresh charge. In high-speed engines, the gases cannot escape as fast as the piston moves. They are still flowing out when the end of the stroke is reached. Therefore the valve is closed, not at the end of the stroke, but when the piston has moved about one-eighth of an inch outward on the inlet stroke. The inlet valve opens as the exhaust valve closes. It can be seen that through the inlet and compression strokes, a leak will reduce the charge and so interfere with the production of full power. The piston must make a tight fit in the cylinder. The valves must seat tightly and gaskets and other parts must be in proper condition. The foundation of an engine is the base, which supports the bearings in which the crankshaft revolves and to which the cylinders are attached. The cylinders of tractor engines are made of cast iron and the cylinder heads which close the upper ends of the cylinders are usually in a separate piece, bolted on. The joint between the cylinders and the cylinder head is made tight by placing between them a gasket of asbestos and thin sheet metal. The crankshaft has as many cranks or throws as the engine has cylinders. There are crankshafts for two-cylinder engines. The upper one is for an engine of the type with pistons moving in the same direction. With both cranks projecting from one side, the shaft is out of balance, so balance weights are attached to the opposite side. Crankshafts revolve in main bearings, which are set in the engine base. In tractor engines, these are usually plain bearings, a half of such a bearing being here. This is a bronze shell lined with a softer metal, making an exact fit on the shaft. With the two halves in place, the shaft should turn freely, but without looseness or side play. The grooves shown are to admit lubricating oil. The piston is attached to the crankshaft by a connecting rod. Pistons are shown. They are made as light as is consistent with the pressure that they must bear, and are hollow and open at the lower end. The piston is attached to the connecting rod by a wrist pin 
or piston pen, which is a shaft passing through it from side to side, and also through the bearing in the upper end of the connecting rod. The connecting rod swings on the wrist pin in following the rotation of the crankshaft, and its attachment to the wrist pin must permit this without being loose. The bearings at the two ends of a connecting rod are usually adjustable, so that wear can be taken up. Some of the methods of doing this are here. The wrist pin bearing is a plain tube, ground to an exact fit. When it is worn, it must be replaced. The bearing is split, and the ends are drawn together by a bolt to the correct fit. The wrist pin is usually firmly attached to the piston, so that the connecting rod swings on it. Methods of securing the wrist pin are also evident. The wrist pin being held in supports cast and in the piston. The wrist pin is held by two set screws, by pins passing through it. The wrist pin shown here is hollow, as is very common, and a bolt passes through part of the piston and into the wrist pin. In the construction here, the wrist pin is secured to the connecting rod and moves in bearings in the piston. A ring fitting in a groove around the piston prevents the wrist pin from moving sideways. The engine must usually be taken to pieces in order to get at the wrist pin. Lock nuts, lock washers, or cotter pins are usually used to prevent the trouble that would be caused if the wrist pin worked loose. A leak-proof joint between the piston and the cylinder is made by means of piston rings that fit in grooves around the piston. Piston rings are not solid, but are split so that they are elastic. They fit snugly in their grooves and tend to spring open to a greater size than the cylinder. This causes them to maintain a close fit against the cylinder, and the gases are prevented from leaking past. Each cylinder is provided with two valves, the inlet valve that admits fresh mixture, and the exhaust valve through which the burned gases escape. These valves are metal discs with funnel-shaped edges fitting into funnel holes. A valve is opened at the proper time by a cam and closed by a spring. A cam is a wheel with a bulge on one side so that its rim is eccentric to its shaft. A rod resting on the rim of the cam is moved endways as the bulge passes under it and the valve is operated by connecting it with the rod. A valve is opened once during two revolutions of the crankshaft, therefore the cam cannot be placed on the crankshaft, for if it were, the valve would be opened every revolution. The cam is placed on a separate shaft, which is driven by the crankshaft at half its speed. 
This is usually done with gears. A gear on the crankshaft meshing with a gear on the camshaft, having twice as many teeth. The crankshaft gear must make two revolutions in turning the camshaft gear once. The cam bears against the end of the valve stem, and as it revolves its bulge forces the valve stem and valve to move endways and thus to uncover the valve opening. As the movement of the piston depends on the crankshaft, the valve can be made to open at the right time by a proper setting of the gears that drive the camshaft. The length of time that the cam will hold the valve open depends on the shape of the bulge cam. The cam bears directly against the end of the valve stem, the camshaft in this case lying along the cylinder head. In the construction shown, the valves are not placed in the cylinder head, but are in an extension or valve pocket projecting from the combustion chamber. This camshaft is near the crankshaft. It would not be practicable to make the valve stem long enough to reach down to the cam, so a length of rod, called a push rod or tappet, is placed between them. The cam moves the push rod, and the push rod in turn moves the valve. This is a construction frequently used for automobile engines. In tractor engines, the camshaft is usually placed near the crankshaft and the valves are in the head so that a valve moves in the opposite direction to the movement of the push rod. This requires still another part to be used called the rocker arm. It is a short bar pivoted at or near the centre with one end at the push rod and the other at the valve stem. When it is moved by the push rod, it in turn moves the valve. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story about tractors, valves, pistons, cams, and so much more. If you're not quite tired yet, Please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.